Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series featuring discussions from the Middle East Forum's projects. My name is Benjamin Baird and I am the Deputy Director of Islamist Watch, a project of the Middle East Forum. I'll be your host today for the next 30 minutes. A quick housekeeping note, uh, this webinar is approximately 30 minutes in length. Uh, at any time, you can leave a question below in the Q&A box. Uh, we'll get to as many of those as we can in the final 10 minutes of this uh, webinar. Uh, so long as the questions are uh, relevant to the topic, we'll get to them in order. Uh, so I'm pleased to introduce our guest today, Christopher Holton. He's the Senior Analyst and Director of State Outreach at the Center for Security Policy. Mr. Holton came to the Center of Security Policy after serving as President and Marketing Director of Blanchard & Company and Editor-in-Chief of Blanchard Economic Research Unit from 1990 to 2003. He holds a BA in History from Tulane University. Christopher, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Benjamin, thank you very much. It is an honor and a privilege to be with you. Uh, I'm a longtime admirer of the Middle East Forum and Islamist Watch. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, Daniel Pipes is a hero to everybody in our uh, industry. Well, the feeling is certainly mutual uh, over here at the Middle East Forum. Uh, so first, I'll jump right in. Uh, for those unfamiliar with your work, please tell us a little bit more about Center for Security Policy uh, and about your position there. Well, the Center for Security Policy uh, is a national security organization founded in 1988 by my boss, Frank Gaffney, uh, who was uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Reagan. And he founded the Center for Security Policy to keep Reagan's dream of peace through American strength alive. And that is our mission through today, is peace through American strength. Uh, I uh, handled the state outreach and education efforts for the center uh, to uh, liaise with law enforcement, uh, elected and appointed officials, as well as uh, uh, individuals and community groups uh, across America. Um, so you mentioned working with uh, law enforcement, state and local governments. So most people, including myself, when you think of counterterrorism work um, or counter extremism work, for that matter, uh, you tend to think about big federal government agencies, the FBI, Department of Home, uh, Homeland Security, even the CIA. Um, how are state and municipal governments, how can we use these institutions uh, in the war on terrorism and fighting Islamism? Well, you know, the thing is this, uh, U.S. counterinsurgency doctrine actually says that when we're fighting insurgencies overseas, our, our methodology is to train local security forces at the community level to battle back against insurgents. And we try to replicate that here in the United States. There have been numerous examples of jihadi cells being taken down in the United States due to the uh, alertness of state and local law enforcement. And there also have been uh, examples of uh, terrorist attacks which have been uh, handled by state and local law enforcement, such as the Orlando nightclub shooting. Um, mm -hmm. But a prime example would be the book 
the, the incident that was outlined in the book, Lightning Out of Lebanon, in which a Hezbollah cell was taken down because a local sheriff's deputy in North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, was working a detail at a warehouse. And this was in 1998. And he saw suspicious characters going back and forth with garbage bags full of cash. And he reported that up the chain of command. It got to the BATF, which was the name of, of the organization at the time, and the FBI. They conducted an investigation and ended up being a Hezbollah cell. Fact of the matter is, if it hadn't been for that sheriff's deputy, they'd have never found out about it because they wouldn't have been working that detail in the first place. And, and had they been there, they probably wouldn't have noticed that it was out of place like the sheriff's deputy did. So it's very important that state and local law enforcement be educated on the threat from Sharia and Jihad. I see, thank you. Um, One of your key uh, accomplishments at Center for Security Policy uh, has been to introduce legislation in various states that quote, prohibits state courts from considering foreign, international or religious law. Uh, this type of legislation has been instrumental in keeping uh, Sharia law out of family and civil courts. Uh, please tell us about your work in this area, but also is Sharia law truly being used and seen in U.S. courtrooms? Uh, how common is this? Well, the, the name of the legislation that you referred to, which we were involved in as part of a movement, and I believe the Middle East Forum was also involved. In, in fact, I remember that you all were involved uh, from the very beginning. Um, it's called American Laws for American Courts. And basically what the legislation says is this, is that no court in this state, whatever the state is, shall enforce a foreign law or a foreign legal doctrine if the enforcement of that foreign law or foreign legal doctrine or the application of that foreign law or foreign legal doctrine would violate any of the fundamental constitutional rights of any of the parties involved. That's what it says. That is the purpose of the legislation. So it's not directed at any particular form of law. It's not directed at religious law of any sort. It's not directed at international law of any sort. It's not directed at foreign law of any sort. It's directed at any of those that would violate the fundamental constitutional rights of any of the parties involved. So the purpose of the legislation is to protect fundamental constitutional rights. Now, the reason that Sharia is so often brought up in this case is because fundamentally, Sharia violates fundamental constitutional rights when it comes up in our court systems because of the very nature of Sharia. And yes, Sharia does come up in state court systems in particular, especially in the area of family law. And we documented that in a book that we wrote called Sharia in American Courts. We found dozens of cases in which Sharia came up in state courts. And in a few cases, the judges ruled in a toxic manner and upheld uh, Sharia law uh, rulings from places like Pakistan. Really despicable uh, the way that it, it has happened. So you, you mentioned that Sharia law is fundamentally um, out of line with our constitution. Can you give me some examples of, of that, how Sharia law is anti-constitutional? It, it violates equal protection, first of all, which is a fundamental constitutional right. Uh, the testimony of a woman is worth exactly half that of a man. Uh, so that pretty much, the reason it comes up in family law 
so often is because of that very thing. Uh, the rights of women are trampled under Sharia, whereas in our system, in our under our constitution, there is equal protection and due process. So very often, both of those are trampled under Sharia. Very important to point out. Uh, on another front, you scored a major victory against a very prominent American Islamist organization, perhaps one of the most well-known Islamist organizations, one we talk about at the Middle East Forum quite often, the Council on American Islamic Relations or CARE. Uh, tell us about your efforts to expose CARE for what it truly is. Well, it started back when we, we were, we've done a considerable amount of law enforcement outreach over the country and we've worked with other partners who have done law enforcement outreach around the country. Uh, and we discovered that CARE also had a law enforcement outreach division, that they were going to law enforcement to train law enforcement on how to deal with various aspects of um, the Muslim community and, and other things. Uh, in particular, uh, it went against something that they had done. One of their chapters had published something saying, don't talk to the FBI. Uh, and uh, at the same time, they're doing outreach to law enforcement and then telling people, don't cooperate with law enforcement. Um, we felt like we needed to warn law enforcement about this because if they're out there doing outreach, we need to sound the alarm on that. And basically what we did is we created a resolution for the state level in which it said, um, uh, because of the numerous care officers, members, and employees who have been convicted on terrorism and terrorism related charges over the years, we list those in the resolution, there are dozens, we think that state and local law enforcement should avoid conducting outreach with that organization. Um, and we, uh, first thing we did is, this was way back in 2017 that it started. And, and uh, first thing we did is we went around to state and local law enforcement, told them a little bit about care. And they all said, yeah, that's, that's somebody we shouldn't be interacting with. Uh, so we created the resolution and, uh, first place we passed it was in Louisiana, and then we passed it in Arkansas. We brought it up in South Carolina. It fell short in South Carolina, unfortunately. Um, but there is a prominent state uh, right now uh, where it's under consideration. And we hope that in 2023, we're going to have a major state uh, pass a resolution for uh, uh, directing its law enforcement community to not conduct outreach with CARE. Very good. Um, so, so CARE, more or less, this is a lawful Islamist group. They may have been uh, involved on the periphery of some, some terrorism investigations in the, in the past, but they mostly work within a legal framework to accomplish their goals. Um, it's a tough question, I know, but what sort of legislation or policies uh, should we enforce the counter groups, lawful Islamist groups like CARE? Well, you know, here's the thing. That resolution that, that you mentioned uh, and the fact that CARE uh, does 
use some legal methods to promote its agenda. Uh, that's, those aren't contrary to each other because our resolution simply says, look, they've had a lot of members, principals, and employees convicted on terrorism charges. I don't mean indicted or you know suspected. These folks were convicted on terrorism charges. So that's the basis on which we think that uh, law enforcement should not conduct outreach with any organization that has had so much, so many of its personnel involved in uh, being convicted on terrorism charges. Now, uh, I don't think we need to direct any of our legislative out, uh, outreach on the state level at CARE because everything that we do, American Laws for American Courts, for instance, Iran divestment, for instance, uh, uh, disclosure of foreign gifts to colleges and universities, uh, the see something, say something bill, um, and our new terrorist offender registry, which I know we're gonna get to, cares against all that. So what we do essentially is counter care with, with all of that. So we don't have anything specific that we do to go after care uh, other than the resolution, uh, which uh, uh, we hope will um, shine the light on them. Um, makes sense. Um, another way that you've worked with state legislatures to disrupt international terrorism, you mentioned it just a moment ago, uh, is, is uh, the Divest from Terrorism Initiative which seeks to convince states to stop investing their pension funds with state sponsors of terrorism. Most U.S. companies, in my understanding, are banned from doing business with Tehran. Are there really states who, who've invested their pension funds in Iranian companies? Uh, and how does this happen? Okay, this, the Divest Terror Initiative was started way back in August of 2004. It was the, the brainchild of my boss, Frank Gaffney, and another brilliant gentleman named Roger Robinson. And you're right. U.S. companies are forbid, were forbidden and are forbidden from doing business directly with Iran. But lots of foreign companies have been doing business with Iran all along. And state pension systems invest in stocks of foreign companies. And very often they invest in stocks of foreign companies that are doing business in Iran. So a US company is forbidden from doing business in Iran, but a foreign company can do business in Iran and state pension systems, which are taxpayer supported, shouldn't be investing in foreign companies that provide corporate life support to the Ayatollahs. And so that was the uh, genesis of the divest terror movement. It was primarily directed at Iran, but not exclusively, but Iran obviously is the world's most active state sponsor of terrorism, has been since the State Department started publishing a list of state sponsors of terrorism. Um, so uh, that effort resulted in divestment of state pension systems uh, in about two dozen states, which was uh, uh, instrumental eventually in getting a lot of the foreign companies to quit doing business in Iran because it made them make a choice. 
do you want access to U.S. capital markets or do you want to provide corporate life support for the Ayatollahs? Which will it be? And so companies like Total SA pulled out of Iran as a result of the divestment movement. And it's much bigger than just the Center for Security Policy. Was, we, we had a Noah's Ark of, uh, of uh, uh, a coalition to, 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 to make this successful. Um, and so uh, that was as successful in terms of the number of states that divested as the South Africa divestment movement of the 1970s and 1980s, which got a lot more publicity. Um, now, I know the list of state sponsors of terrorism isn't very large. In fact, there's just a few states on it. But are there any other countries you think where you could uh, aim similar uh, policies towards them, like Syria, for instance, I'm thinking maybe uh, the Hamas-led government in the Palestinian territories. Um, has, has anybody uh, looked at expanding the targets of such legislation? Unfortunately, it's gone in the opposite direction. When we first started the divest terror movement in 2004, Cuba and North Korea were on the list in addition to Sudan and Syria and Iran. Um, Sudan was taken off the list uh, during the Obama years. Um, uh, North Korea was taken off the list, but then put back on it. Cuba was taken off the list. Um, and uh, today, Iran is still on the list and Syria is still on the list. But, you know, Syria doesn't exactly have a bustling business climate. So, yes, I, I would certainly not be opposed to divestment from the Assad regime because of its support for uh, Hamas and Hezbollah over the years. But there just aren't that many companies doing business in Syria like there are in Iran. And that's simply because Syria doesn't have all the oil and gas that Iran does. See, divestment from Iran is important because we need to starve them of the money that they could earn from their oil and gas reserves. And, and unless, of course, this revolution that's going on becomes successful, in which case it'll be great for everybody, and Iran can re-enter the uh, international oil and gas markets as a legitimate country. Let's all hope and pray for that. So finally, I'd like to ask you uh, about one of your ongoing projects, the Terrorist Registry. What is the Terrorist Registry, and why do we need one? Well, it started back in 2017. I was reading an AP article uh, indicated that over the next few years, hundreds of people who had been convicted of terrorism and material support for terrorism in the United States since 9-11 were going to be released from prison. So AP wrote an article about that, posing the question, is this something to worry about? And they had an expert that they interviewed. And the expert that they interviewed was a guy named Randall Todd Royer, who now goes by Ishmael Royer. And uh, he had spent 13 years in prison. He had, he, had been a, he had been an employee of care and he had gone overseas and uh, received terrorist training from Lashkar-e-Taiba in Pakistan and facilitated other folks to go receive that training. 
Uh, and so he was convicted on terrorism related charges and sentenced to 13 years in prison. He got out. Now he's working for some think tank in Washington, D.C. And uh, he, uh, he, he was the expert. And they asked him, is this something to worry about? And I know you'll be shocked by this. I was shocked. He said, there's nothing to worry about from these people. Um, the, con the convicted terrorist said that there's nothing to be worried about from convicted terrorists. Um, so anyway, uh, I was dealing with a lot of sheriffs at the time around the country. And I went around the country and I, every sheriff that I met with, I said, hey, showed them this. Look, if somebody moved into your jurisdiction who had been convicted of a terrorism offense, would you want to know it? And I have yet to come to across a sheriff who said, no, I don't need to know that. They all said, oh, hell yeah, I want to know that. Absolutely, I want to know that. I want to know everything I can about them. I want to know where they are. I want to, I want to know what they've done, everything. And so uh, we modeled it after the sex offender registry, which has been extremely successful over the years. But the sex offender registry is not the only such registry. There's arsonist registry in a lot of states. Uh, there's, there's registries for crimes that have a high recidivism rate. Um, and because of the data we have from the Guantanamo detainees who have been released, as many as 20% to 30% going back to jihad, after they released from Guantanamo, we have evidence that there is a high recidivism rate amongst terrorist offenders. So what we did was we went to the state that did the first ever sex offender registry called the Scarlet Letter Law back in 1992. That state happened to be Louisiana. And a couple of years ago, well, I guess it'll be three years ago soon, Louisiana passed a law to create the first terrorist offender registry in the United States. And that is in the process of being uh, finalized. It only has a one-time cost of $30,000. It's not um, uh, a, a terribly hard thing to do. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the bureaucracy in the Louisiana State Police has dragged its feet and has not done a great job of instituting the law. Uh, so we're in the process of seeing to it that it gets done and other states have expressed an interest in a terrorist offender registry. That's how it started with the sex offender registry way back in 1992. One state passed it and then another state passed it. And eventually you had enough states passed it to where the federal government started to cooperate with them. It doesn't start from the top down. It, it, it's, a, it's a bottom up approach. Of luck uh, in that regard. Okay, uh, we're going to move on to our audience questions now during the final 10 minutes. We have a question from Jeffrey Cranes. He asks, how can we expect to counter the Islamic influence when major Jewish organizations have essentially embraced them in the name of moral equivalence and interfaith dialogue? Well, look, I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody else how to do their business, but you know, you mentioned the care resolution, Benjamin, and we had that in South Carolina, and it was because of opposition from Jewish groups to that resolution that it failed in South Carolina, believe it or not. So Jewish groups came out and defended CARE, who's essentially uh, has ties to Hamas, whose charter says that they want to replace Israel with 
an Islamic state. Um, so it was very disappointing to us that that has occurred. Um, so I, I, I don't really have an answer to that question, but I will acknowledge that the issue does exist. And it exists, I want to add, from many different types of organizations, not just Jewish Americans. Oh, no question. I'm Catholic, and let me tell you, it, it, it's, it's not just Jews. There's no question about it. There's, there's problems within the Catholic community, for sure, and in other Christian communities as well. Uh, next question comes from an anonymous attendee. They ask, how can we help as individuals in the community without jeopardizing our safety and our family? I mean to look for and report suspicious activities and remain anonymous. Thank you. Well, to, to report suspicious activity, I would report it to your local sheriff or police department. I would, I would, that's where I would start because my experience has been is that local police are much more accountable and responsive to reports like that than the federal authorities are. Uh, so that's where I would, I would, I would report those things uh, if you see suspicious activity. And 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 we've in a few states have passed something called the See Something Say Something Act, uh, which basically says if you report suspicious activity in good faith to a proper authority, even if it ends up not being suspicious activity, you're immune from civil liability. You can't be sued for it because. Um, CARE has facilitated, for instance, in the Flying Imams case, you may recall uh, at uh, the airport in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, um, uh, CARE has facilitated lawsuits uh, against people who have reported suspicious activity. Um, so um, I understand the concern about that. And there are things that can be done to uh, ease those concerns. Uh, another anonymous attendee asks if there's a difference between Islamist and Islamic. Very hot button question there. Um, or do you find them to be the same? I don't use the term Islamist. I don't know what that term really means. Um, I use the terms that they use to describe themselves. And jihadis describe themselves as jihadis. Um, and uh, so I, I, I don't really use the term Islamist. Another question, uh, one moment here, uh, from Monalita Mitra asks, why has the US government not designated CARE as a terrorist group and banned it? After all, most Islamic countries such as Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, and so on have already done so. Yeah, that's a good question. That, that is, uh, that's some of the background that we use uh, when we promote our resolution. Um, there are things that are not in the resolution, but which are key to the resolution, such as the fact that CARE has been designated a terrorist group uh, by some of our uh, Arab Islamic allied countries. Um, and why the U.S. doesn't do it? Well, the U.S. has no mechanism for designating domestic organizations. For instance, Antifa has never been designated. There is no list of domestic terrorist organizations. It doesn't exist. There are, there are lists that the State Department publishes of foreign terrorist organizations. You have the designation FTO, foreign terrorist organization, um, but you don't have one for domestic organizations. Um, and Hamas 
is obviously on the foreign terrorist organization list. And that is who CARE has been primarily affiliated with in the past. Um, let's see. Jeff Billingham wants to know, are non-citizen terror convicts reliably deported upon release? So is the government deporting these people when they get out? How often does that happen? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. Um, mm -hmm. the, the key term he used there was reliably. And I right. don't trust our government to do anything reliably at this point, especially when it comes to uh, enforcing immigration law. Um, so if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say, no, they're not doing it reliably. And who knows what's happening? Uh, Abe Hack asks, is the list of terrorist convictions in the resolution against care comprehensive? And how can we get a text of the resolution? Um, if uh, you will supply my email address somehow to the, 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 the folks uh, who uh, have viewed this webinar, I can send them the resolution. Um, is it comprehensive? Uh, Everything. Every incident and every uh, example we provide in that resolution is rock solid. There are probably some things that we may not have included that may have question marks around them, but the, the several that we included are rock solid. So in that standpoint, uh, it's comprehensive. How do we get a copy of your Sharia Law in America Courts book? Uh, I think it's available on Amazon, Sharia Law in American Courts. Um, it's uh, been a few years since we published it. Um, and uh, it, it used to be available on Amazon. I haven't looked in a while. Um, but uh, if you can't find it, uh, contact us at the center and we'll see what we can do. All right, I think we're just about out of time for questions. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest today, of course, Christopher Holton for sharing with us today. Um, Chris, we provided your email uh, in the chat box below, but could you go ahead and say it for us so that anyone's viewing? Sure. I've got a, a couple of email addresses, but I'm going to give you the simplest one, and it's not that simple, unfortunately. It's my last name, Holton, H-O-L-T-O-N, at centerforsecuritypolicy.org. That's Holton at centerforsecuritypolicy.org. Thanks again, Chris. And to our viewers, thanks for registering for this and other webinar offerings. Uh, for those who'd like to do their part in fighting Islamism, I invite you to text Islamist Watch to 52886. That's two words, Islamist Watch to 52886. You'll receive text and email updates about all of our ongoing activism campaigns, inviting you to send letters to lawmakers, sign petitions, or join our protests and rallies. Once again, that's Islamist Watch to 52886. Thanks for tuning in and keep your eye on your inbox for more Middle East Forum webinars. Thank you very much. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you.